Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most, to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristan Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and am a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is growing bold and employment, and our guest is Naz Campanella, a successful journalist and broadcaster whose voice you may recognize from seven years on Triple J, but was also blind from the age of six months. In this episode, we'll hear how Nas, who also has Charcot-Marie Tooth, overcame all the obstacles put in front of her to live her dream and become one of the most recognized voices on ABC Radio. Nas, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so Nas, let's start back in 1988 when you were born with sight. What happened six months later for you to lose it? So the blood vessels essentially ended up uh, bursting in the back of my eyes and detaching my retinas and it all happened. Uh, so I hear very, very quickly. Um, I was in you know, hospital for a very long time and um, it was very sudden and, and really came out of nowhere. So you grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. What was it like for a young blind girl in the 90s? So Western Sydney is this incredible melting pot of cultures mm-hmm. and, and, you know, people um, from all different sort of walks of life. It's a really beautiful, vibrant place to grow up in. Um, it was a very, and still is, a, a very accepting um, and well sort of grounded part of Sydney. And for me, you know, I grew up in a very big, loud, fun um, Italian family. So there was always lots of food around, always lots of people around. It was very noisy. Um, I had a lot of support um, as a result because there were always people around. And it was also really great because it was the sort of family that really didn't make excuses for anybody. You, You had to, you know, be a part of the family, a full part of the family and, and do everything and, and be everywhere together and it was a really great upbringing. And so when you then obviously transitioned to school in the 90s, what systems were in place back then for children with disabilities? So I started off at um, a special school uh, in Sydney's um, North Shore and initially I was going there from the age of three because it was sort of a you know prep school and, and then you headed into kindy after that. So mum and dad really didn't, they had never met anybody with a disability before. They really didn't know um, what sort of supports would be in place and how I'd go with mainstream schooling. So they were, were recommended the special school and it was great. Look, I was learning, you know, swimming lessons, daily life living skills classes things like how to cut up my food and cooking and and all of those sorts of you know really valuable skills and then I was also learning to read and write braille and I made some really great friends but it wasn't long before the teachers at that school were recommending to my parents that I be transferred into mainstream education and that wasn't something they took lightly they really thought about it deeply and were quite worried that I'd be bullied or that there just wouldn't be the supports in place. Um, Some of the supports I did have in those early years when I did transfer into mainstream were things like an itinerant support teacher um, who'd come into class with me. It was her job to make sure that all the materials and books that I read were transcribed into 
Braille back then uh, and then later when we figured out I couldn't read Braille into into audio and, and e-text and things like that. Um, making sure that anything that was basically basically given to my other peers was also taught to me but in a way that was accessible for someone who's blind. So whether that be, you know, using puff tactile paint um, to, to show me a diagram of something or building something out of blocks so that I had a 3D image in my mind, um, using different counter uh, you know, blocks to, to use in maths and things like that. Um, yeah, it was it was really great. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good system, actually. Now, you mentioned there that you couldn't read Braille. Now, Braille, sorry. You do have um, Charcot-Marie Tooth. Can you explain to our listeners what that is and what it actually means for you? Yeah, so Charcot-Marie Tooth or CMT neuropathy is basically uh, a neurological condition that affects the balance muscle tone and sensitivity in my hands, arms, legs and feet. So it's a degenerative condition and over time um, the muscles sort of waste away. And for me the biggest manifestation is the sensitivity. So the reason why I was struggling for so long not being able to read braille was because I just didn't have enough feeling in my fingertips basically to feel those braille dots on the page. And to give you a sort of example, you know, you guys might touch a kettle and you know you'll register very quickly that it's hot if I touch a kettle um, it takes my hands a little longer to register that that's hot and often by the time Mm -hmm. it does I burn myself pretty frequently so I've got to be very careful about temperature changes (laughs) hot to cold things like that Um, and it affects my balance as well you know um, walking around getting around um, got to be quite careful Um, yeah so it manifests in a couple of different ways and so you touched on all the innovative ways in which you sort of um, did everything that everyone else did. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a journalist? Look, I'd always been really keen on media, I think because it's the way I sort of learned about the world around me, you know, listening to radio from the moment I woke up to the time I went to sleep at night. Um, and I, I loved the way people sounded. I loved music. And When I sort of got into my teen years, I started doing community radio and it was there that I really discovered that power you could have as someone behind a microphone with bringing people together and having them take part in really stimulating conversation and teach people about the world around them. It sounds to me you had a lot of positive um, people in your life. Was there ever a time when you, upon choosing this profession, that people said to you, you know, you should choose something a little bit more, in inverted commas, more suitable for your condition, if you know what I mean? I grew up having a few people tell me that, you know, a secretary or receptionist or psychologist Mm. would, would be appropriate jobs. Not knocking those jobs at all, but it's just not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be uh, behind a desk all day doing the same sort of thing every day. Um, and I did think about psychology and, you know, who knows, n- never say never, uh, might be a second <laughs> career later down the track. Um, I, do, I do love, you know, people and, and, and you know, supporting people, um, obviously, as people can see through my advocacy work. So, you know, never say never to that. But it just it wasn't what I wanted. I always wanted to, um, I guess, have a career that involved media, that involved music, um, that involved writing. I loved writing from a very early age. So I I mostly had quite positive um, influences growing up and getting through school. But then it was sort of, I guess, a bit at uni and then when I was looking for work where I kind of stumbled upon 
people who thought that journalism wasn't necessarily appropriate. And, you know, that, that was obviously for because a number of reasons, but I think one of them is mainly because there aren't a lot of people in the media who have a disability. And I think lots of people were very worried about um, what that would look like. How could you tell a story if you don't, you know, see what's happening? All of those kinds of things. Mm. Absolutely. I, I will confess, Naz, that I did a journalism degree many, many years ago. Um, and as a power chair user, I remember being told I couldn't do some things. But one of the great things about having disability is our creative thinking, our ways to problem solve. I'm sure that's, you know, put you in the best stead going forward, that creativity to, to find solutions to things. Yeah, it's the creativity and it's also the the planning. Like I find myself thinking about a story in a really um, a different way to my colleagues. Like I will write a TV script, a very loose TV script before I even go out to shoot the footage. And obviously that will change depending on, you know, the, the images and the um, answers that we get to our questions from the talent. But I, for me, I cannot visualise what the story will look like unless I write a sort of vague script before we go out. And so I can therefore communicate what we want to the cameramen and women um, and then so I can have somewhat of a sense of control over the story that we're putting together. But also, yeah, it's it's thinking creatively, coming up with um, innovative solutions to problems that people will put up in front of you. Um, it's being able to be adaptable and to do things really quickly um, in this industry. Things are changing constantly and you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be um, ready for change at any moment. Now, you mentioned um, the response from uh, potential employers upon leaving uni. What were some of the responses you got from them? So initially I was applying for jobs and I chose not to disclose my disability. I didn't think it was relevant. Um, I still maintain that it wasn't and it's not. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very personal choice. Some people do disclose and that's perfectly fine if that's what they want. Um, for me, it wasn't relevant to the job. I had a really long CV, huge portfolio, and I had done four and a half years of unpaid internships. And so for me, I felt like that was enough proof that I could do the job. And so mm. I usually got an interview, but then when I often walked into the you know, um, interview, you know, rooms with panels of people, um, you'd feel this sort of hostility and sort of confusion as to A, why I was there and B, it just felt really strange. Like they were kind of mm. just giving me a token interview and it was probably going to amount to nothing. And they would say things to me like, we don't have a safe enough workplace for somebody like you. Um, you know, we... How, how could you be a journalist if you can't see? Um, or they'd sort of just ask me, you know, pose all these problems but never a solution and it was kind of up to me to find the solutions, which was very intimidating um, when you're first starting out in the industry and trying to impress people. And so what would you then say to those potential employers to try and convince them that you were capable of doing the job? What conversations would you have with them or is it just they would say, no, it's, it's not possible? I would draw on the examples of work in the internships that I'd already done, which is what I would tell any candidate, whether you have a disability or you don't, which is, you know, have every answer um, ready with an example. You know, if they say, well, you know, you're going out to a, um, uh, a scene and, and this is what's unfolding, you know, have an example that you can then put on the table 
to prove their theory wrong, basically. Um, and mm. I think that's why I would recommend to anybody that unpaid internships or, or writing and all of that stuff is so valuable because when you have those examples, you have that experience to back up what you're saying, which is that you can do the job like anyone else with the right support and technology. They can't, they can't dispute that. Hmm. What technologies do you actually use day to day that, that people wouldn't be aware of? So I've got JAWS, the screen reading software. It's um, I'm sure some of your listeners would be familiar with it. It's the little mm -hmm. robotic sort of voice that's loaded onto the computer. It's a screen reader. And so that reads out everything uh, out aloud as I type and move through the, the keyboard. I use that. Um, I also use obviously a white cane to get around. Um, I use my phone to record everything. My phone has just become my best friend. It's I listen to the news on it. I read news on, on websites on it. Um, I record my little voice reports to send back to the newsroom for the news bulletins. Um, I've got basically all these different apps in there which I use with, with the voiceover technology that enables me to do my job now. It's amazing. And so I'd, I'd love to explore when the ABC offered you a cadetship in 2011, just for a moment, when you spent a year of regional reporting and news reading in uh, southeast New South Wales. Um, how was that actually being out in the real world practising as a journalist? How, uh, after all those years of, of applying for, for gigs and whatnot, how did that make you feel? So my first year I spent in the Sydney newsroom as a cadet and it felt pretty surreal. Like I was sitting amongst these journalists who I'd been listening to and hearing on TV and reading, you know, their content for so many years and um, felt very lucky to be even in the same building as them, let alone the same newsroom. So that was pretty special. Um, they all took me under their wing. They, um, I, for the first few months I went out with senior journalists and shadowed them and I would just listen, observe, ask questions. Um, after, you know, a couple of days I, I started um, writing the stories and they would um, sub-edit them for me. They'd go through them and, and talk me through what they'd do differently and, and what I, you know, potentially got wrong or how I could have done something differently. Um, and that was the best training really, just to be with people while they were in action and just take it all in and have them there as colleagues, as friends, as people who I could bounce ideas off. Um, and that was a really good way for me to also see uh, what it was like in the field and what sort of things I hadn't considered before and, and some of the little sort of things that I needed to implement um, to make sure I could actually go out on my own. And, um, you know, it took a little while for some of the um, the people in the newsroom to sort of feel comfortable to send me out. I think it's because they hadn't worked with anybody with a disability before, but they were very good at asking questions. They weren't backward in coming forward with, you know, letting me know about any concerns they had. Um, and we just talked about everything. And I think that's what's so great about um, my colleagues is that, you know, communicators are communicators and journos are curious. And, and that meant that we all just um, sort of chatted about everything and it made it made the working relationship really good and therefore made my um, practice as a journalist, um, you know, just as good as everybody else's. And then in that second year I went off into regional New South Wales and that was amazing. Obviously being in a regional area means it's all hands on deck so you were doing writing stories, editing, you were um, helping produce interviews for the local radio, you know, um, programs as well. Um, you were pitching in wherever 
was needed really and that was where I think I, I totally credit my success to that year in that newsroom because my writing had to be clear, concise, it had to be done to strict deadlines. Um, I just learnt so much. And then personally, obviously, moving away from, you know, friends and family and really giving independent living a go for the first time was just an amazing experience. You mentioned that the journalists hadn't worked with someone with disability before. Has that changed in the since you started back in um, 2011? Yeah, I, I there, there are a number of people here with lived experience at the ABC now working um, uh, in, a, in a variety of roles, which is fantastic to see. And, um, you know, no doubt there'll be, there'll be more coming through as the years go on. I think if there was someone who um, was had a disability who wanted to come into, you know, particularly this, the Sydney newsroom or the national newsroom where I work, I would feel more than confident. They are so well-versed in disability awareness now, obviously having worked with me, which makes the, the you know, the biggest difference. Whereas they, you know, um, I guess with me, they sort of didn't know what to expect, but were really excited and, um, and looking forward to the prospect. Whereas now they just would know what to do, what, you know, not to do, what to say, how to offer support. Um, and, yeah, I'd, it would just be an amazing experience for anyone coming into this newsroom. And we can't um, talk to you today without mentioning that you've uh, recently changed roles at the ABC from Triple J to Disability Affairs Reporter for ABC News. Can you tell us a little bit about what that role entails? Yeah, so this role really came about, I, I started putting together some editorial guidance notes to give journos in the media uh, in Australia really uh, a best practice standard for the language that should be used, the tr kind of ways that um, people should be portrayed um, uh, in the disability community when journos were reporting on stories to do with disability. And it also just started because I wanted to have that out and for people to use when the Disability Royal Commission started last year. Um, into violence, abuse, abuse and uh, neglect and exploitation. And uh, so it started from there and I'm my role really is primarily going to be covering the Disability Royal Commission and then when the public hearings are not sitting, obviously come up with my own original story ideas of which I have so many and then as soon as I was announced in this role, I've just been completely inundated. So it's been really wonderful to connect with so many amazing people in the disability community and to hear the kinds of issues they want on the agenda um, and to, to give them a platform to put their voice out there, to talk about the issues that they want to talk about in the way that they want to talk about them. So one of some of the key priorities for me are really um, getting some voices out there that we haven't necessarily heard before. There are lots of people who communicate in ways that look a bit different to how you or, or I might communicate and I'm really conscious that I want to bring those voices out into the public sphere and I... Um, I want to change the way that people with disability are portrayed. You know, for too long it was all about the inspiration porn, to, to use that term mm. coined by the late Stella Young. And, you know, it's it's changed after she um, started, you know, writing and speaking and, and talking about this sort of thing and I want to keep that going um, because it's so important and I, I want to just give people with a disability a platform to share their stories. What are, you, um, what are you hearing from people when it comes to employment and disabilities? What are their main concerns? 
Um, there are lots of concerns. <laughs> the concerns today are really the ones that have been concerning people in the disability community for a long time. Discrimination, the fact mm. that um, they don't even get an interview um, because they have a disability, um, that there's not enough, you know, there's a lot of lip service done um, where people mm. or organisations talk about, you know, providing flexible work arrangements or accommodations and modifications and, and all those sorts of things and they're an equal opportunity employer. But when it comes to putting that into practice, it's it's not being done. And so those are some of the main concerns. And, you know, there are still high rates of people with a disability who are unemployed. Um, and so it'd be great to see those, those things turned around. Mm. We touched on our creativity and the, there's amazing statistics around the fact that we're often more loyal in workplaces. We take less sick days. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful narrative to share that um, we need businesses need to hire more people with disabilities, don't they? Absolutely. And I think it's all those things you mentioned. It's, it's that we're, we're very loyal, we're very creative. Um, and yeah, the, the figures do show we, we take less sick days. But I think what's also really important is to remember that we bring um, a unique perspective to the workplace that for too long has been missing. And uh, I think when you have the same people in management, the same people in an organisation, you will continue to have the same decisions being made. You won't push boundaries and step outside your comfort zone um, or your organisation won't. Um, and that's a really sad indictment on your organisation. Um, and you simply won't progress in, in uh, you know, in, in the world if, you, if you're not opening up your organisation and providing opportunities for everybody in this community. Um, and I think one thing to remember is that with the right support and technology, I have done my job um, in the same way as every other journo has here. And that's a testament to the organisation. And, you know, um, I think that's clear that that story can be told a thousand times over for so many other people in, in this community. Yeah, and it's a great testament to you as well. Now, Nas, we like to wrap up our podcast because, you know, it's called Grow Bold with Disability. We like to finish off by asking our guests, what does growing bold mean to you? Growing bold to me means sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone, trying something new, trusting your gut and really believing in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody else will. Beautiful. I love it. Guys, thanks so much for the, the opportunity to speak to you. It's um, been lovely and um, I'm glad I get to kick off the next series. Yes, yeah, season two, here it is. Thank you so much. That's Campanella. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, then please take a few moments to pop over to iTunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold and for over 25 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.